Easter, happy Easter, happy Easter. Who's glad to be here today? Who's excited to be here today? Who's joyful to be here today? I have good news for you. Jesus is alive. Our hope is alive. Our future is alive because our God is alive. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and pray. I've got a 22 point sermon on Easter. I get paid by the point and I'm going to earn every dollar. It's going to be a good day. I'm so excited to be here with you. This is the biggest day of the year for the biggest person in the history of the world. His name is Jesus. Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that Jesus is alive. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and you have come on a mission to seek and to serve and to save because you love. God, I pray for our time together that those who know you would keep going and those who need to know you would get going. And Lord Jesus, we invite you to send the Spirit to be with us so we can learn about you, rejoice in you, celebrate you, enjoy you, trust in you until we see you face to face. And all of God's people said... Amen. Well, we're here to celebrate Jesus. We're here to meet with Jesus. We're here to rejoice in Jesus. We're here to remember the greatest victory of the greatest person in the greatest event of the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one alongside of Jesus. There's no one equal to Jesus. There's no one who says what Jesus says. There's no one who does what Jesus does. And even the non-Christians agree on the brink of the millennium, Newsweek magazine said this, by any secular standard, Jesus is the most dominant figure of Western culture. He's in a category unto himself. Like the millennium itself, much of what we now think of as Western ideas, inventions, and values finds its source or inspiration in the religion that worships God in his name. Art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and the family, right and wrong, and the body and the soul have all been touched and often radically transformed by the Christian influence. In our time together, we're talking about Jesus, we're only talking about Jesus, and we're enthusiastically talking about Jesus. Amen? And some of you wonder up front, what are you trying to do? Get me born again? A hundred percent. That's why we're here. Trying to get me saved? For sure. Hell is hot. Forever's a long time. You got a problem. Jesus is your solution. That's why we're here. Let me just put it up front. First, I want to start with five reasons to believe that Jesus is God. And then we'll look at 17 reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. And you only need one. So pick your favorite. Here's the first. Reason number one, Jesus came down from heaven. John chapter six, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. How many of you would not make this claim? Some of you came from Mesa. Welcome. Some of you came from Apache Junction. Congratulations. You got out. Some of you came from Chandler. Some of you came down from North Scottsdale. You got the nice cars in the parking lot. Some of you came down from Flagstaff. None of you would say I came down from heaven. Jesus makes this unprecedented, unique, and historically absolutely unparalleled claim. I've come down from heaven. Well, in hearing this, they began to grumble and murmur and complain about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I've come down from heaven? Did we grow up with this kid? 
He went to school with our son and he played little league and he threw a curveball. And we knew he came from a small town. He didn't come from the kingdom of God. Before Jesus' entrance into history, he lived in heaven. He ruled and reigned as king of kings, lord of lords over all creation before he entered his creation. Jesus comes down from heaven. And this is what you, my friend, need to know, that this makes Jesus distinct from, superior to every other religious leader and opportunity. Every other religion, except for Christianity, will tell you, God is in heaven, we are on earth, and the way that we reconcile our relationship with God is we go up to God. We do good works, our good deeds outweigh our bad. We die, we reincarnate, we pay off our karmic debt to God. We, in some way, go up to God. Christianity alone teaches and Jesus alone reveals that we don't go up to God, that God comes down to us. Amen? God comes down to you. God loves you. God seeks you. God saves you. God pursues you. God wants a relationship with you. And he doesn't make you do all the work. He does all the work. You cannot go up to him. And so God and Jesus Christ comes down to you. And when you get your Christmas card and it says on the front, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that means God with us, that God has come down to us. That's what you need to know. You do not go up to God with morality, politics, spirituality, or good works. Jesus comes down to you with humility and love and grace and mercy. Number two, Jesus alone is God. John chapter 10. Jesus answered, I and the Father are one. And the context is this. The religious leaders and those who are his opposers and persecutors are asking him, who are you? And he says, I and the Father are one. Again, they picked up stones to stone him. This is the penalty for blasphemy. That you are not allowed to declare yourself to be God. And if you declare yourself to be God, they put you to death. So Jesus' claims are true or false. He is God or he is not God. But he openly, publicly, emphatically, clearly, unapologetically, repeatedly said in a multitude of ways to a multitude of people on a multitude of occasions, I am God. I am God. I am God. That's exactly what he says. Now in hearing this, he goes on to say, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be who? God. God. Now let me say this. Some of you have been told that Jesus never said he was God. Jesus said he's God. They heard him say that he was God. And the reason that he was executed and put to death was because he claimed to be God. That was a threat to the political establishment where they said that Caesar was Lord and the Christians started revealing, no, Jesus is Lord. And then this was also a threat to the religious establishment because now Jesus was higher than any other authority on the earth. And so this claim of Jesus is unprecedented, unequaled, and unparalleled. You need to know this. In the history of the world, there is no other founder of any other major world religion who makes this claim, I'm God. If you stood in a line, historically, all of the religious leaders, Mahatma Gandhi, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, and you ask them, Does any of you claim to be God? The only person in that line that would stand forward would be Jesus Christ. And he alone would step forward, distinguishing himself from all other religious leaders in all of world history. 
For those of you that are not yet Christians or you're in the process of deciding who you think Jesus is, let me say to you this. The decision you make regarding Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. That that decision, who you believe Jesus is, is in fact the most important thing that you believe. And Jesus says that he is God. Number three, Jesus is perfect. John 8, 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? How many of you would not say this? How many of you right now are not jumping on your social media page and putting as your status perfect? You're not clicking that button because you're afraid of the comments that will ensue. A host of people will step forward and say, actually, I know this person and they are this close to being perfect. Jesus says that he is perfect. And he says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why do you not believe me? Some of you are religious. Some of you are irreligious. For those of you who are religious, you have a concept perhaps of sin. It's a violation of God's law and decree. Some of you are irreligious. You do not have a concept perhaps of sin, but you have a concept of sinfulness because even you would say nobody's what? Perfect. Except for Jesus who would step forth and say, actually, there is one exception. Now, we think of Jesus as being a humble man and a holy man. And if he says he is perfect and he is imperfect, that would be a proud man who's an unholy man. But he is a humble man who tells us the truth. And he is a holy man who tells us that he is without sin and he is perfect. This is incredibly important. You got to follow somebody. You got to admire somebody. You got to learn from somebody. You got to lean on somebody. And Jesus says, I alone am perfect. He's in a category unto himself in all of human history. And when it comes to sin, sin includes your mind and your thoughts. It includes your words. It includes your deeds and the motives of your heart. The Bible asks this penetrating question, who can say that I am pure and clean and without sin? And Jesus alone makes that claim. Sin, my friends, includes commission where you and I do things we are not supposed to do. And it includes omission where we don't do the good things that we are supposed to do. Jesus steps forward and says, I have nothing to apologize for. I have no retractions to make. I have no errors that I have made. There is nothing in my life that has any fault, flaw, or failure. It has been perfect. And I invite anyone to prove me otherwise. Jesus' life is what life is supposed to look like. Number four, Jesus forgives sin. Mark chapter two, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, this injured man, son, your sins are what? Forgiven. And then those who were present asked this question, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? The Bible says in Psalm 51, four, against you only Lord God, have I sinned? That we do sin against one another, but ultimately all of our sin is against God. What that means is we need God's forgiveness. Some of you are haunted by things you have done in your past. Some of you are ashamed of things in your past. Some of you feel condemnation because of things you have done in your past. 
We all carry with us this burden of our failures, these regrets from our yesterdays that haunt us into our tomorrows. Some of you, your life today is broken, devastated, and difficult because the past is living in the present and it shows every indication of tormenting you in the future. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is forgiveness so that that shame could be lifted from you, that condemnation could be removed from you, that that burden could be taken from you. And Jesus comes to forgive sin. And looking at him, they ask this question, how in the world can Jesus forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. Jesus is... God, he's the God who comes to forgive sin and he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die in our place for our sins so that our sins could in fact be forgiven. And in a bit of a plot twist, the religious leaders, they don't say it, but they're thinking it. Who does this guy think he is? And Jesus says, by the way, I know your thoughts. And what you're thinking is naughty. So I'll forgive you too, but you got to acknowledge you're naughty. This is how awesome Jesus is. Because some of us, our sin is external and visible. Some of us, it's internal and invisible. Some of us, it's what we say and do. And some of us, what we never reveal to others. Jesus sees and knows all sin, external and internal, that which is visible, that which is invisible. And he is willing to forgive it all. I have good news for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus will forgive you. And the Christians who are here, they will all testify that he can, does, will gladly forgive sin. Amen? Amen. He forgives. He gives a clean start. He gives a new beginning. He gives a new identity. He charts for you a new destiny and a new opportunity that continues into all eternity. That's the goodness of the forgiveness of Jesus. Number five, Jesus conquers death. Jesus says this in Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the son of man, this is his favorite designation and title for himself. It's taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And he uses it some 80 times to refer to himself. The son of man is God become a man entering into human history as a king to bring his kingdom to rule and reign forever. He says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. Those are religious leaders. Here's what I need you to know. We are not trying to convert you to a religion. Religion opposed Jesus. Religion harassed Jesus. Religion murdered Jesus. Religion is about man-made rules and man-made control. We are not trying to bring you into a religion. We're trying to bring you into a relationship with Jesus. The God alone who loves, seeks, serves, and saves. The God alone who comes to deliver. The God who was opposed by religion but brought redemption and invites you into relationship. So Jesus says that he will die and that he will rise and the religious leaders oppose him. And he says um, that he would be killed and after three days rise again. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our biggest problem is death. No matter how healthy we are, no matter how hard we try, there is a finish line that is determined for each of us. You will die, I will die, we will die, and what happens after that is a mystery apart from Jesus. None of us have been there and none of us have returned from there to explain and articulate what awaits us on the other side. Jesus told us on multiple occasions, you will kill me. 
Three days later, I will rise. He was killed on a Friday, Saturday, rose on a Sunday. That summarizes his three days and everything he promised regarding his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, indeed, in history, came true. Here's what you need to know. Jesus went to the other side of the grave and he came back to tell us what awaits us on the other side of the grave. Jesus came back to save us from sin and death and to invite us into relationship with him. Here's what I need you to know. The most important day of your life is the last day. On the last day of your life, you begin your eternal life. The most important life, the life that never ends. And Jesus has gone into the grave, come back from the grave to invite you to have the last day of your life be the best day of your life. The day where you close your eyes and open them to see Jesus and his nail-scarred hands with deep affection, embracing you, wiping every tear from your eye, the Bible says, and bringing you into his eternal kingdom where you are healed, healthy, joyful, and whole together with his people in his presence forever. Five reasons to believe that Jesus is God. And it all comes down to this issue of the resurrection. If Jesus is dead, Christianity is dead. If Jesus is dead, our hope is dead. If Jesus is dead, we should unplug the band. We should send you all home. We should sell the building. And we should all find something else to do with our time. But if Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. If Jesus is alive, our future is alive. If Jesus is alive, then our eternity is alive. And everything comes down to this historical fact. Did Jesus rise from death? If he did, we should love and follow him. If not, we should abandon and we should in every way forget about him. So now I want to bring us to the matter at hand. 17 reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. Point number one, Jesus died. He was flogged and he was beaten beyond recognition. Many men died from the scourging and the flogging that he endured. He was then crucified, nailed to a Roman cross. He was executed. And when he was hung, he was hung through the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, the hands and the feet. On the cross, he breathed his last and he died in our place for our sins. To ensure that he was dead, a Roman executioner took a spear, ran it under his rib cage so that it punctured his heart sack and water and blood flowed from his side. Jesus was most assuredly dead. Jesus was then wrapped in upwards of a hundred pounds of burial linens and spices. That's how they prepared dead bodies for burial. And he was laid in a tomb without any medical attention or care. First thing I need to establish, Jesus Christ died. Second thing. Jesus' tomb was in a location that was very well known. 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth, the prophet Isaiah made this promise that he would, quote, be buried with the rich in his death. Was Jesus rich? No, he was poor. How did Jesus get the tomb of a rich man? After he died, one of his followers, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, took his private burial plot and gifted it post-mortem to Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was an affluent man, a publicly well-known man, perhaps even a political leader. Just like if you own your home, you've got a deed and a plot number, and it's registered with the government that that is your legal property. So this was his legal property. It was registered and known. Furthermore, it was 
the tomb of a well-known and famous man. And it was hewn out of rock and it was a significant burial plot. And so it was known where it was. Furthermore, Joseph of Arimathea was still alive. So he could have verified where Jesus was buried. In addition, a large stone was rolled over the entryway and the seal of the Roman government was affixed, showing that it was now under the oversight of the governmental leaders and they positioned a soldier on staff at Jesus' tomb to assure that the body was not tampered with. Everybody knew where Jesus was buried. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a location that was well known. Number three, Jesus' tomb was first found by women. Some will say wrongly that the story of Jesus' resurrection was manufactured and mythical, not historical and factual. But if you were going to make up a false narrative, you would choose the most convincing and compelling false witnesses. In that culture, Women were not allowed to vote. Women were not allowed to own property. Women were usually not allowed to testify in court. So if you were going to tell a lie that Jesus rose from dead and that women showed up at the tomb first to find it empty, that is not how you would construct a false narrative. You would find more credible witnesses who could testify in court. But here's the thing. The Bible records the truth. Jesus honored women. It was women who found the tomb empty first. And if this was a false account, it would have been a different witness that was falsely brought forward that had greater historical credibility. Fact number five, Jesus' disciples were transformed from cowards to courageous. As Jesus was going to his crucifixion, his leader of his disciples, a man named Peter, He was a denier. They came to Peter and they asked him, don't you know Jesus? Never met him. Aren't you with Jesus? Not with him. No, aren't you part of Jesus' ministry? I have no idea who or what you're talking about. He denied that he even knew Jesus because he didn't want to suffer what Jesus was going to suffer. What happens after Jesus raises from death is a radical transformation from Peter being one who is a coward to one who is courageous. He goes on to pen two books of the Bible bearing his name, First and Second Peter. He goes on to preach repeatedly in the book of Acts, sermon after sermon, about the resurrection of Jesus. Peter now had a God-endowed confidence, and he no longer feared death because he saw his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, defeat death. History outside of the Bible records that when they came to Peter and told him near the end of his life, we're going to crucify you like we crucified Jesus unless you deny that he rose from death. Peter said, and I paraphrase, I no longer fear death. Feel free to crucify me as you did Jesus. I will defeat death as he did. And by the way, since I am unworthy to die as my Lord, crucify me upside down. And they did. Burden of proof, cause effect. How do you articulate and explain a man who is cowardly in the face of death to a man who becomes courageous in the face of death? In addition, after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a man named Thomas. He was one of Jesus' disciples and followers. And Thomas was a doubter. Peter was a denier. Thomas was a doubter. Some of you are doubters. Some of you have reasons, questions, and objections. Some of you would say, I need the facts for myself. Thomas is like you. And Thomas went in your place to get the evidence that you need. 
And what he said was, I will not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. People were telling him, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. Thomas said it, I got to see it for myself. Unless I see, I will not believe. Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection, showed him his crucifixion scars. Thomas, it's me. Thomas, you spent three years with me. You know my voice. You've seen my face. We are friends. You were there when I died. This is where I was crucified. And Thomas fell down. And his response is the one that I would have for each of us today. He fell down and he worshiped and he said, my Lord and my God. For those of you who are doubters, Thomas went in your place. He asked the questions that you asked and he received the truth that you are seeking And that is that Jesus died physically and he rose physically and he still bears the marks of crucifixion in his body. Point number five, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to crowds upwards of 500 people over the course of 40 days. This is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, just a few short years after Jesus' resurrection. Not sufficient time for myth, legend, fable, or folklore. Furthermore, in that section, Paul, who is writing, says, and many, if not most of the eyewitnesses, they're still alive. You can go ask them. The people that were there, they're still alive. They saw Jesus very much alive. Over the course of 40 days, so this is commonly known historical fact, Jesus is available. And he appears to crowds upwards of 500. Some are enemies, some are friends, some are family, some are strangers. This was well-known, well-established historical fact. Jesus doesn't just live in your heart. He lives in history. Jesus is not just a spiritual being. He is God become a man who died and rose in a physical body. And after his resurrection, he's hugging people. He's teaching Bible studies. And one of the first things he does, he has breakfast with his friends. Don't you love breakfast? I do too. I love Jesus and breakfast. And they had breakfast with Jesus. That had to be amazing. You know a guy is risen from death when he needs breakfast. Amen? Okay. When you go out to brunch, just remember that. You can have breakfast with Jesus too. All right, next point. Um, Point number six, Jesus' followers remain loyal to him. As Jesus' ministry was growing and his fame was increasing and the crowds were enlarging, all of that stopped when they crucified him. Because the point of crucifixion is state-sponsored terrorism. The whole point is to tell anyone and everyone who is following a particular leader, do not believe what they believe, do not behave as they behave, or you will suffer as they suffer. And so at that point, when they crucify the leader, everyone else disbands. The Bible says it this way, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. This is like in the military, if you can kill the leader of the opposition, then all of the troops flee in battle. Yet, after the resurrection of Jesus, his followers remain loyal to him. This is absolutely unusual, and it has no sense apart from Jesus still being alive. People would be loyal to a living man, but not to a dead man. Similarly, some years ago, in a tragic case in our nation's history, there was a man who declared himself to be God, and he gathered some followers. His name was David Koresh. He was a cult leader, not the Christ. And there were those who followed him. But today, we're not throwing parties. We're not planting churches. We're not filling stadiums to sing songs to him. There are not whole you know, FM stations that are designated to singing praise songs to him. You know why? He's dead. 
Once you're dead, your movement is dead. Once you're dead, your legacy is dead. Once you're dead, the followers move on. They do not move forward. The reason that they remain loyal to Jesus is he died and rose and continued very much alive. And so their devotion remained true to him. Next point, point number seven, Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. There is a historian named Edwin Yamauchi. He has researched that area in Palestine where Jesus was buried. And he has determined that at the time, there were the tombs of some 50 holy men who were enshrined. What happens when someone dies and we know them and we love them, we memorialize them, right? We get a headstone. We bring candles and light them. We, we leave flowers. We go there to shed tears. We, we have our heart funeral, funeral and, and we remember the good times with them. How many of you have been to a graveside for someone that you know and love? That's what we do because that's what we need for the process of grief. Yet with Jesus, his tomb was not enshrined. And him being as famous as he was and is, this is shocking. I used to live fairly close to where they buried Bruce Lee. 10,000 people a year go to Bruce Lee's grave. Live not too far for a while from where Jimi Hendrix is buried. They say that 50 to 60,000 people a year go to Jimi Hendrix's grave. Entire shrines are built like Graceland. Who do you go there to remember? Elvis. He's not the king who brings Graceland. We got a better king who brings a better Graceland. But nonetheless, 600,000 people a year, we are told, go to Graceland. It's a shrine built to Elvis. How many people do you think wish they knew where Jesus' grave was? You could sell some tickets to that. I'm telling you that right now. We went to Israel some years ago as a family, get off the bus. It's like, okay, where was Jesus buried? They're like, everybody asks that question. We wish we knew. We'd get 25 bucks ahead if we knew that. We would love to know that. So what they do is they tell you, we don't know where he was buried. You know why they don't know where he was buried? Because he's not there, so nobody went. It's like he went to the hotel for the weekend, checked out, gave the keys back to Joseph of Arimathea, and just moved on with his life, and so nobody really went back and cared. That's exactly what happened. So what they say is, okay, get on the bus. Okay, we get on the bus. They take you to a place. They take your money. They take you into this area, and they say, okay, see that hole in the rock? Yeah, it was probably like that. I was like, that's it? That's all you got for me? I came around the world. I could have found a hole in a rock near my house. This didn't have to be this complicated or expensive. Here's the point. Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. You know why? Jesus wasn't there, so it didn't matter. If he would have remained dead, his tomb would have been enshrined, but it was not. Point number eight, Jesus' followers worshiped him as God. The first two of the Ten Commandments, and you cannot, if you are Jewish in history, overestimate the significance of this. God had ten things, ten commandments that he wanted to communicate to his people. So he writes them in stone. That tells you God is not open to being edited. Amen? He he just anticipates this should stay as is. Okay? So Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. The first two, there is one God, worship him alone. That is bedrock for all of Judaism, for all of history. Yet with the resurrection of Jesus, these devout people said, Jesus is God, we worship him alone. How do you explain? How do you articulate? How can you possibly understand the worship of Jesus apart from the resurrection of Jesus? Next point, uh, point number nine, Jesus' family worshiped him as God. How many of you, if you, if you just came up with this idea, I'm gonna start a religion. Okay, who will join me? Mom? How many of your moms would not sign up for your religion? 
You get up in church and you're like, I'm sinless. Your mom's like, I got carpal tunnel from wooden spooning that kid. That's not true. That's not true. How many of you, if you're going to start a religion, you're like, I need people to worship me as God. I know what I'll do. I'll grab my brothers. How many of you would not worship your brother as God? You're like, no, he gave me wedgies. He may be Satan. He's not Jesus. He's not God. That's for sure, right? Maybe he's the devil. He's for sure not the Lord. Okay, that's your brother. Jesus' brothers who knew him best. If you share a bunk bed with Jesus and you worship him, that's pretty good evidence for me. Jesus' brothers during his earthly life did not believe he was God. After his resurrection, they worshiped him as God. His mother Mary is in the opening chapters of the book of Acts with the early Christians worshiping Jesus. Jesus' two brothers, James and Jude, they go on to be pastors. They write books of the Bible bearing their name. And when they come to crucify and execute them, his two brothers would not deny their worship of Jesus as God. And they died worshiping their brother as God. Next point. Um, Number 10, Jesus' followers changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. In the Old Testament, it says in Genesis, six days God worked, and on the seventh day he rested. That is the Sabbath day. What day was that? Saturday. And then with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God's people started worshiping not on Saturday, but on Sunday, because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. That's why Christian churches meet on Sunday. That is why we are here on a Sunday. It is as if a whole new era and epoch in human history came into existence with the resurrection of Jesus. And you need to know that for them, Sunday was a work day. So this was a massive inconvenience and a shifting of thousands of years of tradition and family history. That meant that they likely had to meet early in the morning before work or late at night after work or some other time because for them it was a work day. Cause and effect, burden of proof. If Jesus is dead, why did people start worshiping on the day of his resurrection? Number 11, Jesus' followers practiced communion and baptism. At the Last Supper, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. He took the bread, said, this is my body broken for you. He took the wine, said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sins. Since that time, God's people have been practicing communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper. It's where we remember Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross with his broken body and shed blood. In addition, Christians started practicing baptism. Baptism shows Jesus lived without sin, died for my sin, was buried, and rose to forgive my sin and give me newness of life. And as water cleanses me from filth, so Jesus cleanses me from sin. And as Jesus conquered death, if I belong to him, one day I too will rise from death and I'll be together like with or Jesus forever. So we've got a baptismal tank. This is the day that some of you need to be baptized. And it is to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and in faith anticipate your resurrection one day. Some of you are here and you're Christians and you've never been baptized. Jesus commands us to be baptized. So we want to baptize you today. Some of you would say, well, I didn't come prepared. Well, he didn't tell you because he knew you wouldn't show up. So he's springing on it right now. And he told me to tell you, you get a free t-shirt. So we have a lot of t-shirts. One hope, one God, one baptism. It's designed by my lovely daughter. Thank you, sweetheart. And we would love to baptize you. We have trunks. We have shirts, we have towels, and in just a short bit, any of you who want to be baptized 
want to make a public profession of Jesus, there will be leaders in the back corner. You just go meet with them, ask them. They will pray with you, talk with you. And some of you would ask, what are you trying to do? Get me saved? 100%. That's exactly what I'm doing. I think hell is bad, and I think there's a better opportunity for you with Jesus forever. And all the Christians who are here would agree with me in this. Without Jesus, everything is different and nothing is better. Amen? And life with Jesus is the best life. And eternal life with Jesus doesn't just begin the day you die. It begins right now where his forgiveness and his love and his hope and his life and his joy and his power intersects your life, transforms your legacy and alters your eternal destiny. And if you're sensing right now, I need to make a decision for Jesus. I need to cross that line of faith and I need to publicly profess it today. We would love to talk with you, pray with you and dunk you. Last few, point number um, 12. Wow, this is a long-winded guy. Jesus' enemy, Paul, was converted. How do you explain one of the greatest enemies of Christianity, Paul, becoming the great advocate of Christianity? How do you explain one who, when we first meet him, here is his story. He is harassing Christians. He is arresting Christians. He is tormenting Christians. He, He is a terrorist is what he is. And he murders an early church leader. And then he becomes a worshiper of Jesus. He becomes one who doesn't persecute others who worship Jesus. He becomes one who is persecuted for Jesus because he knew that Jesus rose from death because he met the risen Jesus. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Paul says rightly, it all comes down to this. Jesus is dead or Jesus is alive. That's it. Let me just boil it down as simply and plainly as I can. Jesus is dead or Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, then he's God. And if he's dead, he's not. It's really that simple. And Paul was one who thought Jesus was dead, and then he saw Jesus alive. Last view. Jesus' resurrection is recorded shortly after it occurred. The Gospel of Mark records the resurrection of Jesus just a few years after Jesus rose. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest treatise and theological explanation of the resurrection in the New Testament. And it was written just a few short years after Jesus' resurrection. Some of you were told that Jesus lived and then hundreds of years later, this crazy story of the resurrection was manufactured. No, it was a fact that was recorded soon after it occurred and the eyewitnesses were largely still alive to testify. In addition, point number 14, Jesus' resurrection is unique in history. How many of you have been told that, that Christianity borrowed the resurrection from pagan mythology? How many of you have heard that? Here's what I would tell you. The Old Testament is older than pagan mythology. That the pagans stole the idea from the Bible, not the other way around. There's a man named N.T. Wright. He did the greatest investigation and examination of the resurrection. He studied at Cambridge. He taught at St. Andrews. He looked at all of the ancient Greek mythology and determined, and I quote, Neither Plato nor Aristotle do we find any suggestion that resurrection, the return to bodily life of the dead person, was desirable or possible. He goes on to say, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent outside of Judaism, the Old Testament. Nobody believed in resurrection. He concludes, nobody in the pagan world of Jesus' day and thereafter actually claimed that somebody had been truly dead and had come to be truly and bodily alive once more. Jesus' resurrection is absolutely without precedent or peer. Before Jesus' resurrection, if you look at the 
ancient Greek mythology, there wasn't even a concept of a resurrection. Jesus did something that people didn't even have a category for. And then afterward, some started to follow by making myths following in the teaching of the Bible. In addition, some of you would ask, Pastor Mark, you just keep quoting the Bible. Well, I quote it because it's true. But some of you would ask, is there any history outside of the Bible, any other witnesses that could be brought forth to testify to the resurrection of Jesus? There is. There are a few. I'll give one for the sake of brevity. His name is Josephus. He was born a few years after Jesus' resurrection. And they sent him out as a Jewish historian to figure out who are these Christians and where did they come from and what did they believe? They were sort of a curious bunch and people had questions. Josephus says this, There lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats. He did miracles. He was the Christ. When Pilate, the political leader, upon hearing him accused by men, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. So they send Josephus out. Go figure out who these Christians are, where they come from, what they believe. He goes out, does his historical research, comes back and says, they follow a guy named Jesus. He did a bunch of miracles. The government executed him. And then he came back to life. And the Christians are really excited about that. You're welcome. That's the non-Christian report of the resurrection of Jesus because the Bible is true. Point number 16, Jesus' church has stood the test of time. We are here as part of the biggest movement in the history of the world. Billions of people worship Jesus on planet earth. The church of Jesus Christ is the largest movement of any kind in the history of the world. It encompasses more nations, more languages, more cultures, more kinds of people. It it includes more nations than any other movement in the history of the world. There is no nation that has stood the test of time and endured the persecution of the Christian church. And I would just tell you this, 18 months ago, this church did not exist. And here we are today following with the rest of God's children in the wake of the resurrected Jesus. He's alive. He's changing lives. He is building his church until he is bringing his kingdom. Amen. How do you explain my friend Christianity? If there's a dead Jewish guy who never married, never traveled in a few hundred miles from home, never wrote a book, never held an office, never never married a woman, never birthed a kid. And if he just ministered for three years and died, cause effect, how in the world do you get Christianity? And this leads me to the last point, perhaps. I say that because I might come up with another one. But what I've got written here is this. Jesus is alive and he's changing lives. How many of you would add your testimony to this testimony? Has Jesus changed your life? Has Jesus forgiven your sin? Has Jesus lifted your burden? Has Jesus melted your heart? Has Jesus changed your mind? Has Jesus fixed your problems? Has Jesus saved your family? This is what he's doing, my friends, and he wants to do it in your life today. I'll tell you, my story is one I I didn't know Jesus. At the age of 19, I go off to college and I didn't have a crisis in my life. Some of you come to Jesus because you've got a crisis. I didn't. No drugs, no alcohol, good grades, moral kid. That's what I thought. Um, And then I started reading the Bible that Grace gave me, my wife now. And I started learning about Jesus because at the state college, it seemed like every class was negative against Christ and Christianity. And I thought, I'm a good person. I'm living a good life. I'm sure God grades on a curve. I'm at least a C student. I'll be fine. That's what I thought. 
And the more I read the Bible, the more I realized that I had a lot of pride. And pride is the worst sin of all. And I was an independent person who lived independent of God. And I was not in a relationship with Jesus. And the more I learned about Jesus, the more I realized that I was not like Jesus. And I came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of these facts that I am honored to share with you. And what Jesus did, he forgave all my sin. He changed my heart. And I would tell you this, without Jesus, I do not believe there is any way that I'm faithfully married to my wife of 25 years. I do not believe that that I would be in any way a joyful person. I believe that my bitterness and my hurt and my anger and my strong sense of justice would have caused me to bear grudges against people and to live a very emotionally unhealthy and burdened life. I believe that I would be very harsh with my children and very discouraging and intimidating. And I'm not saying that I'm a perfect man, but I am a new man and a different man. And by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to me and his kindness toward me, um, I am becoming more like him and I look forward to forever with him. How many of you, Jesus has done wonderful things in your life. If you are here and you are not a Christian, the most important decision you will ever make is what you think about Jesus Christ. And the most important day of your life is the day of your death. And I want you to be prepared to stand before and to meet with Jesus Christ. So for those of you who are Christians, I want to encourage you to keep going. For those of you who are not yet Christians, we want to encourage you to start going toward Jesus. This is the day that we remember the love of God, the salvation of Jesus, the conquering of death, the giving of eternal life, the pouring out of the presence of God to walk with us faithfully and continually every day of our life into eternity. You need to love Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. You need to give your burdens to Jesus. You need to give your past to Jesus. You need to give your present to Jesus. You need to give your future to Jesus. You need to give your family to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to give your death to Jesus. You need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to give your mind to Jesus. You got to give yourself to Jesus. Amen. And if you would like to do that, we'd like to talk with you. We'd like to pray with you. We would like to invite you into the family of God. I'm going to ask the band to come forward and we're going to throw a big party because Jesus is alive. So our hope is alive. Our joy is alive. Our soul is alive. Our church is alive. Our destiny is alive because Jesus is alive. Father God, thank you so much. I am so excited, Lord. It's so great to be loved. It's so great to be forgiven. It's so great to be pursued. It's so great to be unburdened. It's so great to be healed up. It's so great to belong to Jesus. Lord, I pray for everybody that they would know Jesus, that they would love Jesus, that they would serve Jesus, that they would like Jesus. And that if they don't know Jesus, Holy Spirit, help them to know him right now. And for those who need to cross that line and get baptized and to testify about who you are and what you've done, I pray they would join us right now. And God, as we come to sing, we come to celebrate the greatest victory of the greatest person in the history of the world. And his name is Jesus Christ.